we're going to be looking at uh, prophecy and especially Daniel chapter 2. And we have a foundation for many of the other prophecies set out for us in this chapter. Hopefully we will see that it is a master plan, an executive summary, or an overview wherein a lot of the other prophecies fit. And it offers us keys to understand many of the other prophecies. This is a concept that's quite um, familiar to me, especially in the work that I do, high voltage electricity substations. And most of my job is the supervision of building new substations and upgrading existing ones. Now, before I get the job, um, most of the detail of the work is worked out in collaboration between engineers and the asset owner who is, and what I see at the end is a very large folder full of various drawings. Most of the time we'll find that there's an overview page. And this page, similar to the one I have up there, is a basic overview of what the job is. It's what we're trying to achieve in a very broad sense. And it's probably the drawing I go back to the most. It's a very useful tool to give the rest of the folder meanings. So the rest of the folder can be broken down into sections. Each of the sections relates to a certain part of what the job is up there. This is the job I'm working on currently. Um, and so it is a very useful tool and it lays a lot of the groundwork for a big picture. And that is what Daniel 2 is. It is that overview page. It's the big picture showing the development of the kingdoms of men throughout history, leading to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other prophecies, prophecies we will be looking at tonight are the detail. They're showing us the events, how they have happened, and or how they will happen in the case of Daniel, and how they are being moved by Yahweh to bring about this goal. And these are varying detail. Now, there's two concepts I want to establish here first before we get into the prophecy itself. Concepts I'm sure most of you are familiar with already, and these concepts are the kingdom of men and also the varying prophecy, uh, sorry, varying detail of prophecy. Um, if we look quickly at Amos 3 verse 7, um, we'll deal with the varying detail of prophecy first. Um, it says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, and so he has left for us a plan. He is showing us what he has left for us in varying levels of detail. And he says also in Proverbs 25 verse 2 that it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings to search out a matter. And so he has revealed this to these things through prophecy in various levels of detail so that we can search them out. So much so that if you're looking at prophecy for the very first time, well, let's see, probably start in Daniel chapter 2, where you have a very simple prophecy, and it is followed by an explanation of what it means. And then that person can understand it. And so prophecy can be simple enough that anyone who wants to look can start somewhere and get an idea of God's plan. But then it can be so detailed that you can spend years studying at huge depths different aspects of the prophecy. And this is the beauty of all aspects of God's word, not just prophecy. There are so many layers of detail. There's always more to understand. So this is great for us. It means that God has established for us this prophecy to show us his plan, to give us confidence and to bolster us. And he has made sure that we can all understand his plan for this earth. Prophecy is meant to be understood, but we actually have to get out and search it out. And God, and God wants us to do this. The other thing I wanted to look at before we started was the kingdom of men. Now, this kingdom of men is part of a greater concept that is throughout the Bible right from the very start. And that really, when you break it down into its simplest form, is simply good versus evil. 
This is all through the Bible in various forms. Light versus darkness, the serpent versus the woman, the sons of God versus the daughters of men. This kingdom of men is man's attempt at removing God and building for themselves a kingdom. The idea is first shown to us in Genesis 3 verse 15, where as many of us will know well, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this verse is the start of the enmity between man, the seed of the serpent, and the righteous, the seed of the woman. But it's not until a little later that we see that the beginning of the kingdoms of men. The beginnings of the kingdom of men can be traced, the origins of it can be traced back to Genesis chapter 10, to a man named Nimrod. And I'll just read for you Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he became a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And here is a name that I think we'll all be familiar with, Babel. I'm sure we all have some familiarity with the story of the Tower of Babel. This story is told in the next chapter, and it says in verse 1 that there was only one language in the earth. Verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. We'll keep that name in mind. And they dwelt there, and they said one to another, let us... Go, let us build, make brick, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go, too, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and confound their language, that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So here we see the beginning of the kingdoms of men. We see Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And the purpose of Babel was to reach heaven. Lost it. Um, to, make, to reach heaven and to make a name for themselves separate from God. It was a direct challenge to God's authority. Basically, people saying that we don't need you. We are so good that we can get to heaven ourselves. God, seeing this attitude, said that, we, that they would confound their language. See, God's plan had a long way to go, and so he confused their language so that they spread through the whole earth, and therefore the name was called Babel, which means to confuse. There's also thought that this is likely where we get the English word Babel. But just as God's plan had a long way to go, the kingdom of man had a long way to go, and we'll see how the kingdom of men would continue. And it is in this kingdom of men that we pick up in Daniel chapter 2. And if you haven't already, let's turn there now. We pick up the story of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had gone to war against Israel. And from there, he took all of the best people from the land he had brought. And in chapter 1, verse 2, he brought them to the land of Shinar. Remember that name from the Tower of Babel? 
So this has shown us clearly as a continuation of Nimrod's kingdom of men. It is the same place. It was built in the same place. And if that wasn't clear enough, it was given the same but slightly more modern name, Babylon. It was the Babylonians' custom to take the best people out of the conquered land and convert them to their way of life by giving them a privileged life and teaching them their ways at the expense of their past ways. And this was the life that Daniel had been put into. He was in training to be a Chaldean, which was like a Babylonian version of a dream teller or a wizard. And this training was to be three years. He would only have been about a year into this when the king had a dream. And he called all his qualified magicians, the soothsayers, his Chaldeans to him and asking for an explanation of the dream. But they had to first tell him what the dream was, or they would all be put to death, including Daniel. When they, of course, could not do this, uh, Daniel was found and he came before the dream, uh, came before the king, having his dream, the dream revealed to him by God. We'll read through this dream and its interpretation um, quickly. I'll read out of the ESV, just a bit of simplicity. And you saw, O king, a great image, an image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of it could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now I will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they, they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over you all. There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And the iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so will they mix one with another in marriage. And they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. The dream and its interpretation is given to us so clearly, and in this is not only the prophecy showing the future of man and the kingdom of men, but also God's plan for the earth, his entire plan for the earth, and how he is going to bring it all together. But we need to go through this in some more detail. So who are the kingdoms represented by the metals? Well, we are given the first, and it is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. This is the head of gold. Um, 
just as a side note, um, Babylon, Babylon had not been found for many years. Um, it, was for, it took a long time to find it. Many detractors of the Bible said that this was proof that the Bible was false. Um, how could such a large city disappear? Well, the city was found in the early 1800s, but not excavated to any major degree for another 100 years, and is now to this day the largest archaeological site in the Middle East at over 2,000 acres. So without a doubt, this empire existed, and it existed as a great empire between 606 to 539 BC. So why gold? The Babylonians were known for their gold. They taxed in gold. They had a lot of it. This is shown in a later chapter when Nebuchadnezzar builds an entire statue of solid gold to try and make the point that his kingdom would last forever. So it was fitting that it was gold. It was also fitting that it was the head, as it was the place where the kings of men really found their basis. And so next, we have the silver arms and chest. History shows us that the Medes and the Persians destroyed the Babylonian Empire and took over as the leading authority in the area. So we would have to agree that it was them represented in the silver. And also it's very fitting that there are two arms. This would fit well in the, there being two people involved, the Medes and the Persians. And also the Medes and the Persians were known to tax in silver. Silver was a big part of their identity. So silver was a fitting metal for them. There was many people that were not so keen on the Medes and Persians rule. Mostly the Persians by the later times because the Medes failed and paled into significance as the empire progressed. But not least of these was Alexander of Macedon, or as he is better known, Alexander the Great. Um, now, even though he was born in Macedonia, something that Macedonians are very keen to point out at any opportunity they get, he brought together the Greeks completely. And whilst he, there had been uprising from the Greeks of fairly major proportions already, it was him who finished the Persians off, establishing a Greek empire over the land previously held by the Medes and the Persians, and before them, the Babylonians. The Greeks were well known to trade in brass. They used it extensively as weaponry, and our statue had belly and thighs of brass. It is also relevant that the man who brought this all together, Alexander, would be a belly, and that the kings, sorry, that in his death, four kings would take over, two of which were the strongest. They would be Ptolemy of Egypt and Seleucus, who began the Seleucid Empire, the king of the north and the king of the south. These would be represented in the thighs. Next in line, we have the legs of iron. And iron is a very strong metal used extensively and at the time almost exclusively by the Roman Empire, which would make it a fitting, fitting as the empire which overthrew the Greeks. Everything about the Romans was iron. It was used in their armour, their weapons, their symbols, and it's what gave them the edge over the surrounding nations. And they took over and extended the territory of their previous nations. Also of note, during the centre of the Roman Empire, there was a very clear split in the empire, where there were two capitals, Istanbul and um, Rome. The Constantine set up the second capital in modern-day Istanbul, which is now, sorry, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, and this was the religious capital, and there was a separate capital, which was Rome, the original capital, and this is shown to us as the two legs of the image. And lastly, we have the feet of iron and clay. This is given to us as broken and divided empires, partly strong, partly soft. 
And this we will leave here and come back to a little later on. And lastly, in their um, vision, we see a, um, a stone carved without hands come down from the mountain and strike the image's feet. This very clearly tells us that it was the feet or the final kingdom. And this topples the image of the kingdom of men, grinds it to dust, which is blown away. And it is replaced by a stone which grows and fills the whole earth. Daniel identifies this as the kingdom of God, which will stand forever and never be destroyed. And we would take that that the stone is Jesus Christ, who will be the catalyst that takes us from the kingdom of men into the age of the kingdom of God. So we have here a very clear picture of world history from Daniel's time until the end of the world as we know it. And this has not yet happened yet. So this prophecy, which is written thousands of years ago, is still in motion and is unfulfilled, which means that we are, it is still relevant for us today. But whilst it is a prophecy and the interpretation is clear, it is quite light on detail. And this is why I would say that it is our overview page, it is our big picture. This is also the title of our evening that is the foundation of prophecy. So now we're going to look at how it is the foundation and how other prophecies relate back to this overview. Let's see, and let's go and have a look. I'll um, go over a few pages to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 1. And in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on a bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, was raised on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceeding strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, this is starting to look very complicated very fast. But what we are starting to get here is some more detail about the kingdoms which were to come. So how do we know this? Well, let's look down at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked them of a truth concerning all this. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So here we have four kings. These are the representatives of four beasts. So how do we identify them? There's five parts that image in Daniel chapter 2, but only four beasts here. So why are there now, why is there now one less? So I'll answer the last question first. Oh, sorry, and, and, and why are they now beasts? 
So I'll just answer the last question about why they are beasts first. And the reason they are beasts here is that this is a vision given to Daniel from God showing what the kingdoms of men look like to him as beasts, ugly and terrible. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the kingdoms shown from man's perspective as great, full of precious metal and in the image of man itself. And that is why the image appealed so much to Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that he built the image all of gold to himself. So how do we identify these beasts? First, in verse 2, we have a great sea that is stirred up. In verse 3, the beasts come out of it. Um, verse 3, the beasts come out of it. Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us that the wicked are as a troubled sea. And so these kings are coming out of the wicked nations. It is important for us to understand these uh, representative beasts, not literal beasts. So these are representative of the kings which rise out of the nations. First, we have a winged lion. Um, I'm not going to go into every detail of this vision because we'll be here for most of the evening. But we'll start with the lion's wings, and it is very representative of the Babylonian Empire. There have been many archaeological finds proving this from the Ishtar gates with huge winged lions to carved image depicting the same. Next, we have a bear raised up on one side. As we know, the Medes and the Persians followed the Babylonians. So do the descriptions fit with them? From history, we know that while there were two nations, the Medes and the Persians, one was much stronger than the other. They tended initially to work well as a multicultural society, but later on rebellion came over taxes. And this is where the Persians took over much more. And therefore, we have the bear, the bear raised or stronger on the one side. It also had three ribs in its mouth, and it is told to rise and devour. So these would be representative of great nations that it had conquered. The three great nations that history tells us that the Medes and the Persians conquered were the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Lydians. So we're starting to get more detail here, showing for us what is history, but for what Daniel was future movements of the kingdoms and how to recognize them. Next up, we have a leopard with four heads. A leopard was very fitly chosen here. As we saw before with the Greeks, that came up against the Medes and the Persians, that they came up under Alexander the Great. And the leopard is known as one of the smaller and great cats and is incredibly fast. And this is exactly how Alexander, the little king over a small army, dared to stand against the might of the Persian Empire. He was, there's tales of battles where he stood 30,000 against 600,000 of Darius's men. And um, which is him as a small, King, but then he also he went with speed that he took over the nation, the speed of the, um, the leopard. He also had four wings, two more than the Babylonian beast, which speaks to the speed of his conquest. And lastly, it is characterized as having four heads, which is very clearly shown to us in history that he was taken over by four kings, Ptolemy of Egypt, Cassander of Macedon, and Greece, Lysimit, I can't get that one. Lysimachus of Thrace and, and Bithynia and Seleucus of, over Syria. It also says that dominion was given to it. And this is shown to us by the incredible victories of Alexander against massive odds. And lastly, we have the fourth beast. Great and terrible, it had iron teeth. Again, a notable sign of the Romans. And it devoured and broke in pieces, which is very characteristic of the Romans. And they occupied a massive territory. 
we have a picture here showing the um, the sizes of the nations. And you can see very clearly that the nations started out with the Babylonian Empire, moving down to the Persian, then back up to the top. We have the Greek Macedonian Empire and then the Romans. They got much bigger as they progressed. You can see the entire Babylonian Empire can fit just in the bottom right corner of the Roman. This image also, the, sorry, the vision also shows a little horn coming out um, out of the uh, original 10 and had the eyes of a man and the mouth that spoke great things. And we see in verse 21 that it made war with the saints. I won't go into this too much, but we generally accept this as the Roman Catholic Church, specifically the Pope, who spoke great blasphemies and has continued to persecute those who believe the truth of the Bible over the church teachings through the ages. And they will continue to do so until Christ destroys its power. And this is why we have one less nation in this, in this vision. It is showing us that the last part of Nebuchadnezzar's image is a continuation of the Roman Empire. This power shown is the Catholic Church, which will continue until Christ's return. Next, we will look at Daniel chapter 8 with the ram and the goat. We'll read through the prophecy quickly. Uh, we won't go through all of it due to time, but um, we, what I want to do is just show you that there is the detail of this prophecy, which, which relates back to Daniel chapter 2. Just wanted, we want to see that it's the same events in more detail, showing us that God rules in the kingdom of men. Uh, chapter 8, verse 3. And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one that could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I considered, behold, a male goat came from the west from the face of the whole earth, oh, sorry, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing in the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against it and struck the ram and break its two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before it, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one that could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceeding great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So here we have the ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, but one was higher than the other. The higher one came up last. This is the same language and imagery that we saw in the bear. It is the Medes and the Persians, one stronger than the other, and the one coming up after the other. And again, history shows us this is the case. It took uh, the, the, the sorry, the Persians took the territory of the Babylonians and expanded it in every direction. And this shows as the ram charging north and south and east um, and west. And we saw it in the map. We saw that in the map showing the nation's territories. They got bigger as we progressed through the, through the um, empires. Then we see a goat coming from the west, Greece being west of the Persian Empire, and it had a, a, a large horn, this horn being Alexander. And the goat charged and struck the ram, breaking its horns in power, and it could not stand before him. 
we saw in, we see in history that it took quite some time for the Greeks to overthrow the Persians. Many years before Alexander destroyed most of the Persians' naval power in the Battle of Salamis, and then they had not the power to take the Greeks until Alexander came along, and he completely trampled down what was left of the empire. And then, what is well recorded in history, that Alexander, who was busy taking over the world, not without some issues, he died suddenly. It was thought from perhaps alcohol poisoning or perhaps someone wanting to take over his kingdom. It was quite common in those days to poison your rivals. And after him came up four kings, which we talked of earlier. This is shown in the four horns that come up. And as you can see, there is now great detail showing the way the kingdoms of men would develop and go through the ages. It also shows us the accuracy of what God is giving us, that he will not lead us, leave us blind to his return. It really is amazingly detailed and well worth the time to look through. But this is, sorry, this is by no means the only links we could look at in Daniel to compare to chapter 2. Um, but just, we'll finish off in Daniel now, and we'll, we'll go to Revelation, but before we do, we'll look at la one, last, um, one last quote, and that's at the end of chapter, tw uh, sorry, the end of Daniel, chapter 12 and verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. This pretty much marks the end of God's visions to Daniel. It is to be sealed up until a later date. So how does this, does this prophecy in Daniel extend as a blueprint for prophecy beyond the book of Daniel itself? It certainly does, and we will now turn to Revelation. I'm not going to go into too much detail for the purposes of time. This is often a daunting book. The symbology of it can be quite complicated. And if we go into depth, we'll be here for quite some time, mostly because I'll still be at home studying it, because it's very in-depth. Um, so when I was a teenager, I was always very keen to get an understanding of Revelation. But inevitably, when we actually got around to studying Revelation, the person that was leading the study would say, we'd have to start in Daniel. Because it was always said, it was to understand Revelation, we must start in Daniel. And this this is very true. And But as it stands... Uh, we would always spend far too much time in Daniel and never really got to Revelation. So I, um, I have much to learn about Daniel and Revelation, especially Revelation. But we will turn quickly and look at Revelation chapter 1, just to get a bit of a foundation. Um, as you may know, Revelation was written after Christ's death and resurrection and just after AD 70, which saw Jerusalem destroyed and the temple destroyed until not one stone was left upon another. So that's quite an interesting story about how that happened as well. So as this is now many years after Daniel, we will find that the prophecies in this book mostly deal with what is to happen after the time that it was written, as Babylon, Persia, and Greece were now history to the Apostle Paul who wrote the book. And Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 shows this to us, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place, and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And also in verse 19, the things that I have seen, the things that are, and the things which are, which are to come. So these, this is talking about the visions in the book. 
And we see that um, we are encouraged to read and understand these. And we are shown that these things are, um, which Paul, are things that Paul has seen, which is chapter one. The things that are, which are the letters to the seven ecclesias in chapter two and three, and the things which are to come, which are the rest of the book of Revelation. And so we're going to have a look at a couple of things to try and show that the visions shown in Revelation are getting into the detail of the fourth beast empire and showing its actions through the ages. Uh, something to bear in mind with Revelation, as I'm sure we're all aware, that is not written in chronological order um, and that it shows the fourth beast in many different ways. Uh, my father, when I was growing up, he explained this to me. Is, um, it's like looking at a photo album of a person growing up. The photo of someone who was 25 will look very different from the same person at age 10, but it is the same person. And this is what Revelation is like. It shows us the development of the kingdom of men from Paul's time to us and beyond as snapshots. So with this in mind, let's turn over to Revelation 5, verse 2. And it says there, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So here we have a reopening of the book, which is tying us back to Daniel. And the vision here goes on to talk about the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, who is being the only one worthy to open this book. And in this book, we have visions. Uh, we won't go into all of the visions now. We just want to focus on a couple of points. Um, we just mostly focus um, quickly in Revelation 13, so we're running out of time. So we turn to Revelation 13, and I'll read verses 1 through to 7. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon the head, his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto this beast? Who is able to make war with him? And it was given him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given to him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So here we have some more beasts, and they are rising out of the sea, which is what we've heard before. It's the same language that is used in Daniel chapter 7. But there are many more similarities. We also have ten horns. We see a leopard, feet of a bear, a mouth like a lion's mouth. This is the same features as the four beasts from Daniel chapter 7. God is showing us that this is the kingdom of men. The residue of each of the kingdoms come together and is manifested as the beast that Paul sees here. Um, also down in verse 11, we have another beast come up. We see that it looked like a lamb but spoke as a dragon. 
it was also exercising the power of the beast before him. So this is a continuation of the first beast. It is the next snapshot, snapshot in our photo album. And this beast looks like a lamb, but it speaks as a dragon and is a continuation of the first beast which made war with the saints. And where have we heard this before? This must be the same Roman Catholic Church that persecuted the saints from Daniel chapter 7. And this is also shown in its features. The Pope has long been known to falsely present himself as God's representative on earth. And this is him having the appearance of a lamb, the real lamb, of course, being Christ. But he speaks blasphemies and as a dragon. The Catholic Church has long held views that do not resemble what the Bible teaches. So that would fit here. And lastly, it wields the power of the first beasts, that being the Roman power. So the last thing in our image, which we'll go back to, is the feet and iron of clay. Um, if we look at that area that was once held, by, once held by the Romans, there we see many nations who are all working under democracy. Most of these nations are Catholic, which is what binds them together. It does have some strength militarily, shown in the iron, but it is not very strong due to them being separate nations. This is very similar to what we have in the area today. We have the European Union, who professes to be strong, but in reality can't get anything done, as the nations hold each other back. We have the strong propping up the weak. It says in Daniel chapter 2 that they will not cleave one to another. And we have that shown to us today. There is a great divide in Europe between cultures, cultures that do not mix very well, but they think that, that is their strength. Here is a picture that I'm sure many of us are familiar with, which is the European Union's head office in Brussels. And we had to, to note, does it look familiar? We can see that it is modelled after the Tower of Babel. It is truly amazing that God has provided us such clear links showing us that this is the modern-day kingdom of men. Our feet of toes, sorry, feet and toes of iron and clay. This situation that we see right now in the European Union is exactly what the image portrays of the feet in Daniel chapter 2. And now to finish up, we'll just turn back to Daniel chapter 2 and look at verse 34. And thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its fate. Sorry, it's upon its feet. There were iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is what we are waiting for. We have seen the failure of the kingdoms of men. And to this day, we are living in an incredibly divided world. So we are waiting for the stone to strike the image. Verse 28 says that this will be in the latter days. And verse 35 says that all of the metals will be broken in pieces together. We are waiting for this image to stand finally in defiance to God. And in verse 44, in the days of these kings shall God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what must shall come to pass hereafter. 
and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. This interpretation is sure. It is going to happen. So let us work together to make sure that we are on the right side when Christ comes. And he will destroy these kingdoms of men and fill the earth with God's glorious kingdom, which shall stand forever.